Well, we made it. You made it. Congratulations. Uh, Here we are at the end of the book of Exodus. So we started this study the first Sunday of the new year, and and here we are. You You have looked at the second book of the Bible, and I hope that you've been encouraged by it. Uh, I know that the rule of teaching is that the teacher is always benefited most, and, and that's studying this book has been an incredible uh, blessing for me, and I, I hope as we have looked at this book together and as we've read it together that it's been a blessing for you, and I, and I hope that the takeaway for you is that the Old Testament is indeed relevant. And I don't know what God has for you, I don't know where your future lies, but, but if you're ever in a different place or a different time and you have a different pastor, I want to encourage you to, to encourage your pastor to, to remember the Old Testament, to not just preach the New Testament. The Old Testament is our Bible too. In fact, nearly 1,700 years ago, a guy in North Africa named Aurelius Augustinus, known to church history as St. Augustine, he said that regarding the Bible, the New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. And what that dictum is, is it's an assertion of the unity of God's Word, that in the New Testament, what we have is a fuller explanation or, or unveiling, to use Paul's terms from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, of the Old Covenant of the Old Testament narrative of what God has done. So the New Testament is the authoritative interpreter of the Old Covenant. And so things that seem obscure are oftentimes made clear by the light of later revelation. But conversely, the New Testament is not completely absent from the Old Testament. Which is why as we've looked, for example, at the book of Exodus, we've been able to see that there are many themes introduced even if they're introduced in seed form, that ultimately find their fruition in clear New Testament exposition. So there is a unity to God's Word, a a consistency to it. And in keeping with the unity of Scripture, the the Pentateuch, or the the five books, the Pentateuch is is the, the Law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they flow together as a seam, as a seamless entry into the corpus of Scripture. You may recall that Genesis ends on sort of a cliffhanger. Genesis chapter 50 ends with the people of God in Egypt, and, Mo- and Joseph is, is about to die, and he says, you know, we're here, but one day God will deliver you and take you up out of here. Take my bones with you when you go, and then he dies. And it totally sets the stage then for Exodus 1.1. And here we are at the end of Exodus, and we have the same situation where verse 35 of 40, where the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and Moses can't approach it. That's really the last verse of the, of the narrative, and verses 36, 37, and 38 are a kind of postscript. But verse 35 totally tees up Leviticus 1.1. Because in Leviticus 1.1, the Lord speaks to Moses from out of that tent. So Leviticus enables you to see what's happening immediately following. 
But then Numbers is very clear at the beginning of Numbers 1.1 that Numbers takes place exactly one month after this. And then Numbers concludes 40 years later with them poised on the plains of Moab preparing to enter the promised land. And then Deuteronomy is Moses reflecting back over the last 40 plus years. And the book of Deuteronomy is three sermons. It's three sermons that Moses preached to the people. So this whole thing flows as a unified whole. And in the book of Exodus, though, in the book of the law, in the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus plays a unique role. It's the book of Exodus where God is introduced in terms of his character and his nature. The book of Exodus sort of forms the constitution of the people of God. If you want to think of it, it's not an exact correspondence, but if you want to think of it in terms of our own government, Exodus is the constitution, and Leviticus is is all of the federal regulations that get enacted. Okay? It's, It's the regulations that get enacted in support of the covenant that has been instituted at Sinai. Okay? Now, Exodus is, a, is an incredible book that has revealed God. It has also revealed our problem. Think of the number of issues and, and lessons that have been addressed in the pages of Exodus. We learn at the beginning that the people of God are languishing under the tyranny of a master, but that far from simply being a statement of geopolitical slavery or sociopolitical slavery, The tyranny of Pharaoh is likened to the tyranny of sin. And so Exodus is the Bible's first real trumpet blast against the nature of idolatry. How Pharaoh has posed himself as a false god. He's the god of Egypt. And so what we have then is a battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. Who is the Lord? Who is the authoritative being in whom people should place their trust and allegiance? And so that question is asked over and over throughout the first several chapters of the book. And meanwhile, we learn some incredible things about the nature of God's calling and the nature of God's presence with us as we conduct His mission. How we're so oftentimes focused on gifts and that sense of anointing which refers to someone's unction and ability when what God is interested in is in character and in faithfulness to obey. And so we see in chapter 5 the disastrous effects of Moses going off script and doing his ministry in his own strength. And the people of God are in a worse situation than they were before he started. And there's utter discouragement, but God is faithful. And even though the people rebel, God continues to be faithful, culminating in the Exodus event where we are taught about the nature of the Passover. And we are introduced to the concept of a substitution where something has got to die. And so Moses, through revelation of God, reveals that a lamb will take the place of the firstborn of Israel. And then God conquers the gods of Egypt, leads them out across the Red Sea, 
And he takes the long way to Canaan because the people aren't ready. The people are still trusting in armies and might and in the gods of this age. And so we again see the pulling power of idolatry. And we think in terms of redemption so much as God oftentimes saving us from our circumstances, but the real work of redemption is getting us to stop trusting and stop hoping in the gods of the era and age in which we live. And so Moses gives them the law at Sinai and they see thunder and and trumpets and it's an awe-inspiring event. And God makes His covenant promise clear. If you will keep My covenant and obey My word, you will be a treasured possession among all the nations. And you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so God in that covenant promise invites them into participation in his mission to make his name known that they would be priests in the world they would be his emissaries and agents and officers acting in his behalf in the world to make his name famous and what do we immediately find that the people fall into sin fall into gross rebellion and so the Golden Calf episode of chapters 32, 33, and 34 underscore that this is not just an Israelite problem, it's a human problem. And we're always, always, always inclined to falling back on the culture from which we have come. And we're so quick to leave the Lord. And here we're introduced then to the concept of a mediator. That we don't just need something to take our place. We need someone to interface on our behalf. And so throughout the book of Exodus then, we have been continually pointed forward to the, the ultimate covenant, the new covenant, to the ultimate mediator, to the ultimate sacrifice. This book, in its introductory way, has shown us the whole of the Christian life. This book has shown us our need for a Savior. It's shown us our need for sanctification. And now, in this last chapter, we get to see, we are privileged to see, the correlation of the experience of God's blessing and our obedience. The tabernacle narrative has taken up a third of the book. You may recall that from chapters 25 to 40, The primary concern is the tabernacle. The driving question is how can God dwell among people? And so in chapters 25 through 31, God has meticulously given instructions for how the tabernacle should be built. Then, resuming in chapter 33, sorry, 35, 35 through 39, recount the Israelites meticulously following those instructions in the construction of the tent and all of its artifacts. So I didn't make us go through all those chapters reading about how they hammered out the gold plating and everything else. But chapters 25 to 31 are God giving instructions. Chapters 35 through 39 are the people following those instructions. And then here in chapter 40... On the first day of the first month of the second year, God gives the command, 
erect the tabernacle. So if you think about this historically, this is taking place on the one-year anniversary of the day that they were brought out of Egypt. Okay? So to the day, one year later, they're celebrating God's presence with them by erecting the tabernacle. And um, one of the things that I want to point out is that in this chapter we see obedience leads to blessing. You will see in verse 16 that it says, this Moses did, in accordance with everything the Lord said, Moses did. So verses 1 to 15 are God giving the instructions. Moses does it. And then what follows, you may have heard in the cadence of my voice as I read, there is this repetition throughout the chapter. After everything, what does it say? Moses did as the Lord had commanded. As the Lord had commanded. As the Lord had commanded. In fact, it's said seven times. That's not a coincidence. In fact, this is the third set of seven as the Lord commanded that takes place between chapters 35 and 40. We're just reading this last one because that's part of our chapter. So three times in the final chapters, we get a set of seven instances where it reiterates that the people did it exactly as the Lord had commanded. Now, brothers and sisters, that is driving home a message that God is glorified and we are satisfied when we follow God's instructions, when we obey His commandments. I don't, I don't want to uh, you know, make it seem like we, we are under a law of works because that's not true. But you know what is true? That Jesus Himself has said, if you love Me, keep My commandments. That in the epistles of John, 1 John specifically, the Apostle writes that those who know God are those who keep His commandments. A litmus test of the veracity of your claim to be in right relationship with God is are you keeping His commandments? And then in Revelation... Multiple times, the saints are identified not simply as those people who, who, who trust in Jesus in their heart. It's those who keep the commandments of God and hold to their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, The lesson is clear. If you want to experience God's blessing in this life, you must obey Him. God is not your grandpapa who wants to just snuggle with you on his lap while you run around totally brazenly defying his every command. God is a great king. And if you want to experience his good pleasure, we must obey his commandments. Now it's important to remember that the proper order is this. We don't obey in order to earn God's favor. We obey as fruit of the fact that we love and believe. And this fruit then is pleasing to God. Now the people of Israel had just been chastened for loving and trusting something more than God. And this put their entire relationship in jeopardy. And, and I reiterated when I preached through it that we are in a new covenant era. The community is not at risk of being cut off. 
But here is something that is real hard for Americans to hear. The promises to the people are only enjoyed by you as an individual if you are keeping the covenant. By analogy, America is prospering. You may not be, but the country is. The people of God have an assured place in God's sight. We are redeemed as a people. But you and I, we participate in that blessing by faith alone, through grace alone, but the fruit of faith is obedience. Recently, Paul Washer had the audacity to suggest that only 20% of the people in the pews are saved. Now, that's a ridiculous number, but I think he's just making a rhetorical point that there are people in the pews who think they're saved because they said they raised their hand for Jesus at a camp rally one time, or they walked the aisle and, the, and they walked and they got on their knees in the sawdust and they, and they made and they prayed a prayer. Or their culture has conditioned them that good people are in a church on Sunday. Brothers and sisters, regardless of your confession, if your confession of faith has not manifested itself in faithful obedience to the commands of God, you need to reconsider. God is a holy God. The book of Exodus has made that clear. Remember, God's character is revealed in Chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. He abounds in mercy. And mercy is renewed daily for those who repent. But for those who will not, those who are stubborn and recalcitrant in their actions, the Lord says He will by no means clear the guilty. So the first lesson is there is a correlation between your experience of God's good favor and blessing and your obedience. So obey. But the second thing is that we need to look to where the signs of the Spirit are for our comfort and assurance that God is with us. Okay, so right here in chapter 40, the people are blessed that they get to have a tent that has fire and smoke. Now, never mind the fact that they don't seem to remember this, and this isn't, they sail off happily into the sunset the way verse 38, because just a few chapters later in Numbers, when they start moving, they're immediately back up to their old ways. And this whole generation ultimately perishes in the desert. And the book of, the, uh, the book of Jude is clear that they were destroyed because of their lack of faith. But right here, we tend to think that we want something big and grand. We go through life feeling like God is not really with us. Oh, we may know that He's with us because we know the Bible verses, but we don't feel like God is with us because we don't see God with us. And we wish, oh man, if only I could have big signs and wonders taking place, then I would know. Then I would know. But guys, remember the New Testament. What we are told in 2 Corinthians 3, that the glory of the new covenant is greater. And so when Paul wants to authenticate his ministry, he doesn't so much rely upon miracles and wonders and signs. What does he point to? He points to them. The fact that God has changed them. You're the authenticity of the legitimacy of my ministry. So brothers and sisters, if you want to be reassured that God is with you, 
If you want to be reassured that God is with us, don't look for signs and wonders in the heavens. Look to the fact that you have grown in the faith. Look at the fact that you struggle with sin, but, but you have increasingly learned to trust less in your own immediate responses. And you've learned to trust more in, in God's timing. That we have learned as a, as a people to be maybe less grudge-holding, more forgiving. That God is, is, is faithfully blessing the, the, the proclamation of His Word. That we're learning to step out in faith and take risks for the kingdom that we maybe weren't taking before. And when you see that, you can know the Spirit is here. And find comfort. And the third lesson that we can glean from chapter 40 is that God is with us, whether you feel like it or not. It brings it back full circle from chapter 1. Chapter 1 begins with the people languishing under Pharaoh. And, and where's God? Has God abandoned them? Has God forsaken them? Well, God has been quietly, silently <coughs> blessing them by causing them to reproduce dramatically in the face of opposition. But God's been silent. And so the question is asked, where is God? And that question finds its answer then in a redeemed people in chapter 40. God is here in our midst. God was never absent. But now He's here and He's left tangible evidences of His presence. But then, it ends with a question. Or it begs a question. Even though the book of Exodus reminds us that God is with us and God will, will be with us in the troubles and trials of life. And that's so true. But, but have you noticed that it talks about in verse 36 that, that Moses could not, or 35, that Moses could not access? Here's Moses, the guy who has had unprecedented access to God. He's invited up to the top of the mountain when no one else can go. He is sheltered by God's own hand. He's the one who sees God at the fiery bush. On and on, Moses has encountered God so that his own face shines like the sun. But now here, at the moment of truth, when God's tabernacle, the sign of His presence with His people, is erected and God comes upon the, the, the tabernacle. And so now God is not just far away on a mountain or far ahead in the cloud, but He's there in their midst. Moses can't come close. And so it begs a question. If God is with us, how can we have access to God? That's the question. And it's a question that's not ultimately answered until the New Testament. You see, God provides a temporary stopgap, so to speak, through the Levitical priesthood where they can access the Holy of Holies once a year. But only this after they have done extreme self-purification measures. So one day a year, they get to go in and be in God's presence and have assurance that God has pardoned their sins when they, when, when they put the blood on the horns of the altar or on the, on the mercy seat. That's hardly access. 
Which is why in the New Testament, it's such a big deal. When Jesus, as he dies, the, the, the veil of the temple is torn in two. That is symbolizing something huge, epoch-shifting, that now we have direct access to the throne of grace. And Hebrews chapter 3 makes it clear that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses is, is a pretty big dude. He, he, Moses is, is in the course of human history a very influential person. But one even greater than Moses has come. And Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the priesthood. He has perfectly fulfilled the role of mediator and sacrifice and covenant initiator. And so, brothers and sisters, as we conclude the book of Exodus, the lesson ultimately points us to the person of Jesus, who by His Spirit indwells us and is with us as we go about our lives wandering apparently over the face of the earth. God is with us in Christ. And the sacrifices of the tabernacle and then subsequently the temple have come to an end precisely because Jesus has done it perfectly. He has paid it all. So, so what? One, remember that your place in Christ is secure. You may feel alone, but you're not. Don't look for the wrong things. If God seems absent, it's probably because you're looking for the wrong things. Look for the right things, which is the evidence of the presence of the Spirit. And third, remember, there is a correlation between you obeying God's commands and your experience of God's blessing. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the perfect lawgiver. He's the perfect propitiation. He's the perfect expiation. He's the perfect mediator. And so everything in Exodus points to the person and the work of Christ. And it's this Christ that we celebrate here today, and it's this Christ whom has instituted this table that we are about to partake. And if you are in Christ then remember that when we observe this table, it is as if we are the elders of Israel up on Sinai feasting at God's table in His presence. That's the mystery and the beauty of the Lord's table. That we are at Christ's table feasting in His presence. So brothers and sisters, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But I want you to walk in confidence that Christ is with you and He has fully satisfied your debt. And if you are obedient to His commands, you can expect to experience His blessing.